you Psalm 53. And this, this will be the third time in, in a short a matter of minutes that you will hear the words and the message of Psalm 14, Romans 3, and Psalm 53. Our first scripture reading, John read for us, Psalm 14, is almost word for word an identical replica of what I'm about to read from you, read for you from Psalm 53. And as I already explained, Romans 3 quotes Psalm 14, especially in the original language, and applies it to the Jew and Gentile, every human on the face of the earth being under sin. So you're going to hear the same words for the third time. And the Bible will regularly use repetition as a way of teaching you something that's kind of an important idea. It emphasizes, underlines, it, it highlights something that you should really get a hold of. And in this case, it is that God wants to teach us that sin originates in our heart, it results in shame, and it requires salvation. It requires a savior. That's the three-time repeated message from whether you're reading Psalm 14, Psalm 53, or Paul's application of it in Romans 3. Sin originates deep in the inner person, in your heart. It results in shame, and it requires a savior. So like those heavenly beings in Isaiah chapter 6, shouting day after day, night and day, holy, 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 three times repeating, the Bible wants to repeat this message to you. Sin, shame, Savior. I pray that in God's kindness, as we read his word and apply it to our lives, we'll get the message. Sin, shame, Savior. Let's read God's word. Follow along. I'm going to start with the superscription. The all caps letters say to the choir master, according to Mahalath, a maskil of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge? Who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Well, brothers and sisters, the grass will wither. The flowers will fade. But what I read to you for the third time, it is the word of the Lord and it will endure forever. Amen? So the big idea, you've already heard it, but apparently God wants you to hear it again and again. Sin originates in the heart. It results in shame. 
It requires a Savior. We see this very nicely in the outline of our psalm. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Sin originates in the heart. It's the biggest section. It'll take the longest time to explain. And then we'll briefly consider the last two points. Sin results in shame, and it requires a Savior. So verse 5, we'll consider the shame. And verse 6, we'll consider the salvation. 1 through 4, sin in the heart. Verse 5, shame. Verse 6, salvation. The fool says in his heart, verse 1, does your heart speak? Well, the beating organ inside of your body does not have lips. It does not say words. What's being communicated here? The fool says in his heart, not the fool says with his lips. Careful, slow, meditative reading. The fool says in his heart. His heart is speaking, but clearly not with words, with actions. The fool says in his heart, when a person, an image bearer of God, made with an outer body but an inner soul, an inner being, the heart, the motor that drives you, the moral compass, the internal GPS, explain it however you like. The Bible explains that we are mind, body, and soul, holistic creatures. And there's something that's inside of us that you can't see. But we all know what it is. We describe it. We have concepts or categories. You can use secular terms or you can use religious ones. We choose the Bible as our guide for understanding ourselves. And the Bible repeatedly uses the word heart. And the heart literally refers to one's inner self. Your stomach. Your bowels. Do you ever get anxious and your, your tummy gets upset? Do you ever feel something in here when you get all excited? Do you ever get real sick and you feel it in your stomach? Well, an ancient person knows that those feelings, the seat of your affections and emotions, you, you, you feel it and experience it very naturally in your, in your inner person. So Old and New Testament, there's these words used to describe not the pumping blood of your heart, as you and I think about it, but the inner affections of what you feel, what you think, how you, and thinking is included. They didn't even have a word for the brain. So, so the inner person, that's what we're talking about when we say heart. The part of you that you can't see or touch or examine with a microscope or in science, or, or can you? This was very fascinating. As I was reading a book a few years ago, I was reminded this week as we were studying and examining the Bible's teaching on the heart. Contemporary science is starting to catch up to apparent ancient biblical wisdom about you, about me, about the human person. Recently, scholars at UCLA and McMaster University have been doing experiments, and they have shed light on examination of your gut, and that your gut apparently has feelings. These studies point to the way that there are microbes in your stomach that affect directly the neurological activities of your brain. Quote from the study, your brain is not just another organ. It's affected by what goes on in the rest of your body. And according to Scientific American, a journal on scientific experiments, it reports 
that there is an often overlooked network of neurons in your bowels so extensive that some scientists, and I quote from this journal, your stomach is a second brain. Hmm. Perhaps your body is way more complicated. You just thought this was just digestion. To talk about your splagizomai, that's the Greek word for your bowels turning over, and Jesus uses that word to say, I have compassion. I have splagizomai. And we could use a variety of examples, but all throughout the Bible, all the New Testament, the inner person is described as these internal organs that are typically your kidneys, your liver, you go on and on. And this isn't even just biblical stuff. You could see other different cultures and ancient peoples have similar ways of describing the inner man. So what's the point? The deepest part of your being is reflecting your view of whether you're a fool or a wise person. And you're a fool when you say in your heart, when your inner person thinks God doesn't exist. You might say it with your lips. You might be here singing these songs at worship today. You would have been in the ancient world a theist. There was like no such thing as atheists for thousands of years. This new phenomenon of the modern atheist, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, etc., etc., that's not what our passage is talking about. The fool says in his heart, oh, those guys are fools, but we're wise. No, they're talking about practical atheism, functional atheism. You go on singing songs on Sunday, but you live with your conduct as if God does, does not care, does not exist, and isn't going to hold you accountable one day. That's a fool, according to the scriptures. That's what our passage is talking about. It's, it's a, a psalm to the people of Israel, people that believe in God, not atheism, and says, contrasting with a wise man, who meditates on God's law day and night and wants to make it a part of their inner man, the fool lives like God isn't there. I think this is very important for us if you would like to understand who you are as a person, how to fight your sin, and how we're to live together as a church community. It's extremely important. Do you want to make sense of the world, good and evil? You want to make sense of yourself. Like, do you want to become more self-aware and know yourself better using the illumination and light of God's word? Then understand this. Sin originates in your heart based on your view of God. And if you're wondering, well, what is my view of God? The Bible also says that the heart's very deceitfully wicked and, and we, we can't understand it. So how am I going to understand my heart? It's so fickle. One day I feel happy and the next day I feel sad. Is that what you're saying, Pastor Phil? No, I'm not. I'm saying read Psalm 53 very closely and notice the relationship between the first line, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Then what's the rest of our section say? They are corrupt. They are doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Already you can see that the first line is telling you that there's something inside of you based on a core feeling, conviction, affection, a sense of what you think and value the most in the world. Is it God or is it something else? And on the basis of that, you will act. Your actions, your external behavior, your moral good deeds or bad deeds, they are a reflection of the inner character of your soul. This is exactly what Jesus teaches. 
Do you remember those words in Matthew chapter 15 when he calls out the very religious, theistic Pharisees and says, you hypocrites. And in case you're wondering, because you hear that word a lot, this word hypocrite was never used in this way until Jesus. Most scholars believe that Jesus coined the usage of this word hypocrite because it's the word theatrical actor. You actors and actresses, you put on a show. And then he explains, you are a people who honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. In vain you worship me, you teach as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he goes on and says, don't you see that anything you take from the outside and pass in through your mouth and into your stomach, that gets expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from your heart. And this is what truly defiles a person. And then this is the line of lines on our point. Sin originates from the heart. Get this from Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 15 Verse 18 and 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnessing, slandering. These are the actions that defile people. But if you go around with unwashed hands, that does not defile anyone. Now there's a context of what Jesus is saying, but do you see the point? Whether we're reading in Psalm 53 or reading the words of our master And the greatest teacher that ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ, said, it is out of the overflow of that inner person that all of these actions are being revealed. And what kind of actions were they? A whole host of them. Murder, adultery, porneia, that's the word sexual immorality, theft, false witnessing, slandering, things I do with my eyes, thoughts I do with my mind, Actions I do with my hands, no matter how you want to spell this out, I think the point is clear. Sin originates in your heart. And if you want to know your heart, take some time, step back, and evaluate the actions of your life. You don't need to look deep down within. The solution to your sin problem is not more internal examination of trying to figure out the weirdness of your heart. Just look at your life. What are you spending your money on? Take that imaginary tape recorder that Francis Schaeffer said is hanging around all of our hearts. It's invisible. You didn't know it was there, but it's there. And every time that you say something about someone else and judge them, tape recorder goes click on. And then once you're done, click off. And then at the end of time, the judge of the universe You stand before him, and you're wondering, how am I going to be judged? He pulls off that tape recorder, and you're like, wait, what what was that? I didn't know that was there. Oh, we're just going to judge you by your own words of how you judged everybody else. That's fair, right? Francis Schaeffer is trying to get to the point. Your heart will communicate what you really believe through your words, And those words, over the course of time, will reveal your standard of right and wrong. Your discernment of what is good and bad. So look at your actions over the course of a long time. Not just yesterday, but yesterday as it builds up over a year, two years, three years. And Jesus tells us, you will know a tree by its fruit. 
Is there any fruit? Look at verses 2 and 3. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God. Now, granted, some of you might be thinking, this seems overly harsh, like hyperbole, poetic exaggeration. No one does good. I mean, there's some people that are kind of good people. Are we saying that there are no good people? Let me give you three takeaways from these first four verses, okay? Takeaway number one, you will never understand yourself or the world until you understand that sin originates in your heart. The whole world, including you and me, is universally corrupt. This is what we call the totalness of our depravity. Total, not in its, we are as bad as we possibly could be, but total in its effect. The little poison of sin is dropped into every facet of human life. Your mind, your heart, your actions. There's a little bit of it infecting everything. And so then when you step back and look at your life, you can see the way that that corrosion and corruption of sin is is kind of like that milk that spoils over time. It's not refrigerated and it gets old. That's what I mean, over time. Look at any institution, look at any political ruler, look at any system, system of government. You will see the corruption of man's heart through their actions. So there is a universal totalizing of sin. And that's precisely the way Paul uses it in Romans 3. Jew and Gentile, there's not a human. Every mouth will stand before the judge and they'll say, nothing. We'll have nothing to say. What are you really going to say? You have a case on your own. Based on your own moral righteousness, the Bible is trying to tell you, you don't. And the problem isn't that you've just done some bad things. It's that those bad things are a reflection of the rotten core of your heart. And that every single human has this. Jonathan Edwards, I think, helps us the most regarding this point because a lot of us are like, I don't know. Some of you are like, amen, I've been taught this since I was a little kid. I believe it. I've experienced it. I'm following everything you're saying, Pastor Phil. But for those of you that are struggling with this, Jonathan Edwards says, a piano by itself playing beautiful, harmonious notes, judged in its isolated music, might sound very beautiful and look good. But when it then adds the other instruments of the orchestra and then the wider context of the symphonic piece of music, if that piano is out of key or it is playing the wrong notes that it should be playing in light of the rest of the greater context of the symphony, the piano which once sounded by itself beautiful now sounds awful. You see, this is that important line here. The God of the universe looks down from heaven. He is giving you that expansive, wider context. The symphony of creation the grandeur of the glory of God is the ultimate comparison. Not you comparing yourself with your neighbor, your sister, your brother. Well, am I as bad as them? The reason why Paul concludes that section in Romans 3 with all have fallen short of the glory of God is to teach you that the cosmic scope that you need to see yourself in is the entire symphony of creation. 
And you, my friends, as well as you may sound or look apart from the wider context of Scripture and the holy glory of God, we fall short when we're in the context of that Scripture. That's the point that you need to realize. You and I might do some good things that seem in and of themselves, by themselves, when just looking at them in one isolated case, it might seem good. It might sound or look beautiful. But when it's trying to harmonize with the purity of God's holiness, when it's trying to mesh and flow in the exact rhythm and key and sound of the wisdom of Scripture, all of us end up sounding foolish, looking foolish, and are condemned. Only then will we conclude there is literally none who do good. Second takeaway, if sin originates in the heart, first, you're going to be able to understand yourself and then the world better, more accurately. Secondly, I believe many of you will deeply struggle with sins that are habitual and addictions until you understand that sin originates in your heart. If all you're doing is trying to change your external behavior, you will modify the behavior and not change your heart, and you will replace one God for another God. If you never get to the heart of the matter, if you never get to your view of God, and that the way that your view of God is a reflection of your understanding of right and wrong, and and your discernment of whether or not I should do this behavior or that behavior, you will continue in a repeated cycle of not actually uprooting the very source and core of your sin. So this happens a lot. People come to me for counseling and they're saying, Pastor Phil, I got to confess, I'm struggling with fill in the blank. And when they do so, we can sometimes be told, well, then stop doing this and do this instead. Um, Let's say I'm, I'm struggling with an addiction to drink too much alcohol as comfort at the end of a day and I'm stressed out and instead of turning to the Lord for my refuge, I'm abusing alcohol. Maybe I'm not a, a, a crazy alcoholic, but I, I know my heart is saying that I should treat alcohol however I want and I should use that as my source of comfort. So we could try and teach them, okay, well then stop buying alcohol and stop doing this and you know, create a whole list of actions But if we never address why, what does this say about your turning to the Lord for refuge versus you stiff-arming the Lord? If, If we never get into those crevices and have you share why at the end of a a long, hard day, you're feeling anxious and worried about your future or how the past went or the guilt you feel because of some sin you did years ago or the words that a coworker spoke to you. And the way that that deeply affected you. And therefore, you give yourself excuses for like, well, it's been a hard day. And we could go on and on and on, but I hope you see that you will be like the person that goes out to their lawn and takes their weed whacker and trims the top of the weed, only to see two months later, the weed's back. Let's uproot sin from its origin, from the heart. And discipleship at embassy, I think, needs to aim and direct its gaze at each other's hearts. 
So brothers and sisters, this takes skill. This takes patience. This takes prayer. This takes deep listening to one another and the safety of a community where it is okay to not be okay. You're never going to share what's really going on in your heart if you feel like, well, they're just going to judge me. And then you're never going to get the help you need. And then your heart is going to continue to be unaffected. And therefore, sin will continue to persist. Third lesson. As a church, if we're going to do point two, which is help each other with each other's hearts, we should never do some sort of overcorrective church discipline based on what we perceive to be what's in other people's hearts. In other words, a simple way to say this is that church discipline and correcting and rebuking each other should be especially geared toward the actions and the fruits of the heart, not, well, I was sitting down and talking to you and I perceive you're, to, you're proud. I, I think that you're greedy. I just had this suspicion the way that you're acting, you, you, you were driving around that car and I assume, up, oh, you're greedy. You're, you're a consumerist. I know your heart. That kind of attitude and approach to church community will kill the opportunity to do heart-level discipleship. We should never presume that we really fully understand our own hearts to some degree. But we should look at each other's external behaviors and then through those provide rebuke and correction, training in righteousness. So, so no, as a church, we actually believe and practice what's called corrective church discipline. And there should never be a case where we all collectively vote and say, as far as we understand, this person is outside of the community of faith because we perceive a selfish heart. A selfish heart, how are we going to actually quantify that or explain that? We need clear external behaviors as fruit that is rotten, that gives us a case to say unrepentant sin has lingered for too long. So keep these Lessons tucked in your head for your own personal sin, for how we can disciple one another, and then how ultimately we would do that collectively as a church. And I think all that flows out of this first idea. Sin originates in the heart. Secondly, it results in shame. Notice verse 5. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Notice very clearly that the fool who does corrupt things, when God looks down and sees all of these people who are not doing good, no, not even one, and as they eat other people, did you see that in verse 4? Who eat up my people as they eat bread. Now, that could be a reference to what in ancient societies was cannibalism, as we would call it today. There were many examples of people believing that in order to get the power of their enemy, they would eat them and eat the inner parts of their being. So like their liver and other things. So that's one possible reading of it. Another just more metaphorical reading would be to say people are being treated like they're not people. They're being abused and oppressed. They become the poor and rejected in society. And so when you treat human beings this way, whoever they may be, but especially if they're the people of God, you should know that verse 5 says, God will bring terror. God will scatter the bones of him who encamps against you. I think that's a play off of verse 4. God will scatter your bones because you're going around eating people 
all the way till you clean and lick off their bones. It's, it's graphic, but that's what I think the psalm's trying to say. If what you're doing to the people of God, if what you're doing to other humans is so oppressing them that you are treating them as if they're nothing, eating them up, consuming them, well, God's going to scatter your bones. It's what we call retributive poetic justice. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You treat people like this, I will treat you like this. This theme is all over the Old Testament. and We've seen it repeatedly in the Psalms. God will scatter their bones and he will put them to shame and reject them. You reject my people? You reject other image bearers and don't treat them this way? You will be rejected. That's, I think, the sense of verse 5. And so I keyed in on this word shame because of the way that the first time the word shame is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2. God made humans, they were naked, and they were unashamed. And the result of their sin, the before and after of the first story of the Bible about sin, about corruption, is they knew that they were naked and they hid themselves because of their shame. That's the first story about the human condition. I think our text is talking about the sinful corruption of the human condition. Agreed? I also think our story is in various ways referring to Genesis 1 to 11, the universal scope of the problem of humanity. And here's three evidences of it. First, I mentioned that one, shame. The same exact word that you see that God will put them to shame is the word used to talk about the shame in Genesis 2 and 3. Second, do you see that word corruption in verse 1? They are corrupt. The first time that word is used is in Genesis 6 to talk about the universal scope of every human on the earth is so corrupt that God is sad that he even made the earth. That's Genesis chapter 6. Read verses 7, 8, and 9, and then the flood comes down as God's wrath of judgment destroys the whole face of the earth because they are corrupt. Third reason, I think, that Genesis 1 to 11 is the background. It's almost like Psalm 53 is a poetic meditation of the universal sinfulness and corruption of humanity from Genesis 1 to 11. Third reason. Did you notice in verse 2, it said, God looks down from heaven. God looks down from heaven in Genesis 6 and sees the corruption of man. Same exact phrase. And then remember Genesis 11 when God looked down and descended from heaven to see the tower that the hubris Babylonians built to try and ascend up into the heavens and get the access and power of God whenever they wanted. That tower was not just to say how, how great they were at construction or Oh, they've got a tall building. It was to reach heaven so that they would become great because they would have the power of heaven dispensed on them whenever they wanted. What, what a stiff arm affront to the God of the Bible. Oh, you think I can be manipulated whenever you want? You think you're in charge and control? You're just going to do whatever you want. Whether it's Genesis chapter 2 and 3, or it's Genesis 6, or it's Genesis 11, God looks down from heaven. And he sees no one good. You could fast forward to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's again the exact same phrase. God looks down from heaven and he's talking to Abraham. And he's saying, is anybody righteous? Is there even one? 
That's righteous. I will spare the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and not judge them if I could find just even one righteous. So all of those are evidences of why I think Genesis is in the background of Psalm 53. The universal scope of the depravity of man, the corruption of their sinful heart. And we know from Genesis chapter 3 that the result of sin is shame. Just like our passage says in verse 5, God will put them to shame. God's so wired that the way the world works is that when you sin, you experience shame. Many of you know that on Wednesday nights, you're all welcome. We're studying Genesis. And for the first time because of that study, I think this idea of nakedness and shame came into new light. And I think it might be useful for you as you consider the result of sin that originates in your heart is shame. Why is it that the before and after of the first sin of the Bible, and there's very, other, very few other things described as to, so they were naked and unashamed, then they ate a fruit that God told them not to eat, and then they felt naked and ashamed. Like, what is that? What's going on? And here's my best guess to explain it. Have you ever thought about that perfection of innocence in Genesis chapter 2? They were naked and they were unashamed. And wondered, what is that trying to communicate? Naked and unashamed. Who's naked and unashamed? Like, in your experience, I think the only people who are naked and unashamed are children. You know, little kids running around, and they don't care. They're just little toddlers, unclothed, not worried about what other people think about them. They don't have any insecurities or fears. It's a picture of the innocence of a young child that doesn't have any regard for what the rest of the world thinks about them. That's Genesis 2. Then as soon as they start acting as if they are God, as soon as they say in their heart, there is no God, as soon as they eat that fruit, they are bringing upon themselves shame because their eyes are being opened like a little child of something that would be so inappropriate for them. So carry the illustration over. In Genesis 3, what Adam and Eve experienced is when a little kid gets exposed to adult, mature content that they should not have seen. Do you know how devastating that corrupts a little kid's heart? I don't need to go into specifics. Most of you that are mature and adult in the room, I think, can start to fill in the gaps. If a young child sees something, experiences something, is told something, that they are not supposed to experience, and their hearts were not made for that, it corrupts them. It affects them. That's the description of nakedness and shame in Genesis 3. You want to hide, you want to run, you want to do anything from that awful feeling of feeling dirty and guilty. That's Genesis 3. And friends, each and every one of us are not just victims of people doing that to us as little kids. We, like Adam and Eve, our first parents, we chose, because of the sin in our heart, to say there is no God and inappropriately try and act as if we were God, and that corrupted us. And until we start to realize, until we have our eyes open to the reality of our sin and turn from our sin and put our trust in the one who can repair and redeem and restore and cleanse us, or to use the language of Genesis 3, cover us in our shame.
Isn't it great that before Genesis 3 even ends, God in his grace and mercy does two things. He promises to defeat the evil that corrupted them in the first place. That's Genesis 3.15. And then he clothes them after they tried to clothe themselves. The God of the Bible from the first story of the Bible wants to tell you, I'm going to send a savior. I will save you from your nakedness and shame. I will heal you from your brokenness and corruption. And that's why our psalm concludes, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Oh, that salvation. Hebrew word is Yeshua. Oh, that there would be Yeshua coming out of Zion. I need to teach you a couple things, and then we need to rejoice with this song. First, let me teach you that Yeshua is the word for salvation, and Yeshua is the exact name Jesus was given. Yeshua is the Hebrew word for Joshua or Jesus. Zion is the place where the temple was held. Zion was the place of God's throne, the place of God's presence, the place where he would conquer his enemies. It was another way of just talking about the very presence of God. So we have a psalm that's saying, oh, that Yeshua would come for Israel out of Zion and then restore the captivity. That's the third thing I need to teach you is that the word fortune is okay, but it's really not the most appropriate translation. The word is captivity, being enslaved, being in bondage. And we have a passage telling us that the God of the Bible, who knows our sin, sees our shame, wants to cover us in that nakedness, wants to save and restore our captivity from our sin. And he did that through Yeshua. Oh, that salvation would come. Oh, if salvation would come. Here we are, and we know salvation has come out of Zion. Did you notice that John Pay read for us Hebrews chapter 12? That wasn't an accident. All of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are gathering in the festal gathering, and you are seeing the ultimate Zion. What is being referred to here is picked up by the author of Hebrews as saying salvation through the blood of Jesus has come out of Zion. When God restores the captivity of his people, the ultimate captivity is not just being human slaves, but being slaves to the sin of our heart. This is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that each of us were born into sin, slaves to sin, objects of God's wrath and judgment, because we are so deserving. No one's done good. None of you are going to say, okay, here's God's holy righteous standard, and here's me, and we're going to tip the scales and be like, oh, righteous. All of you will come before the throne of God and realize that God's word here is precisely accurate about you, your heart, your actions. And the shame that you feel, and I pray that in God's kindness that your conscience is not so seared that you experience shame when you choose to say there is no God in your heart and act like it day after day. And that ugly, horrible feeling should drive one to the need of a savior. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what our whole church is centered around. The message that you've heard from beginning to end of this sermon is, in short, the gospel. 
the good news that salvation has come to deal with your captivity and sin, to cover your shame, and to set us free so that you could rejoice and be the kind of human that can actually do good now. Not in your own strength, not in your own power, but in the power of the one who pours out his love in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. So, do you believe the gospel? That old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy, Weak and Wounded, Sick and Sore, my favorite line in that hymn is, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Do you understand that your sin originates in your heart and those feelings of shame that are deep down within you, they have a solution, they have a savior, and his name is Jesus. And all that God requires is to feel your need of him. Do you, do, you, do you sense your need for Christ right now? If you're here today, you're a guest or a visitor, we're glad you're here today. This is what Embassy Church is about to proclaim this message and it urge you, plead with you, feel your need of Jesus to cover your shame, to provide the solution for your sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The God of the Bible doesn't just look down from heaven and say, you're all sinners. The God of the Bible comes down from heaven to earth and bears the shame. Many people say in Genesis 3, how did Adam and Eve get covered with animal cloths? Well, God made a sacrifice and covered them. It required blood. And in the same way, and in a much greater way, the blood of Jesus covers over your shame, no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how young you were. We believe in the power of the gospel that leads to rejoicing that Christ has finished the work and creates the opportunity for us who were not seeking after God to be sought by God, turn from our sin and put our trust in him. We need to do that afresh every Sunday, every morning, every day. Let's pray once again that God would give us that grace now in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to come in the name of Jesus because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there is one mediator, there is one priest, there is one way to the Father. And so we come now in the name, in the blood of Jesus. It's our only hope. This devastating indictment, God, it's totalizing. So we pray for the Holy Spirit of God to convict each of us of the sin in our hearts and let us see the relationship between our hearts and our hands, our thoughts and our attitudes. Lord, we pray that we would be rightly humbled by this teaching from your word. We ask that our church as a community would disciple one another really wisely and well. Helping one another, listening to one another so that our hearts can be exposed. We want to pray that this church community, we would rightly view you. And not say in our hearts that you do not exist, but affirm with all of our hearts there is one God. And that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We do confess, God, that we don't. 
We don't love you with all of our being. We have so exchanged the glory of your amazing grace for such lesser things, lesser glories. Oh, the list would go on and on if we were to list out the number of ways that we have switched the creator God in our hearts for some created thing, some idol. And so I want to ask that your spirit will reveal that to us time and time again, and that you will continue to seek us and pursue us even in our sin, and in your grace and mercy, cover over it and lead us to rejoicing. Lord, for anyone that's here that has professed faith in Jesus, and today's message is just making them think, I don't even know if I'm a Christian now. Lord, I pray that they would really sweetly receive your amazing grace. That as we take the Lord's Supper now, we would realize how your flesh and your blood was consumed and taken up by the evil men in this world so that we could receive your love and mercy and that it is not by how well we've done but just our need of you the fitness of our need for you and give us the hope that you give us those desires so help us patiently wait for them in jesus name amen